You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features brand marketing consultant, Della Yador. A proud Bronx native, Della left the city after high school to pursue a BA in communication at the University at Buffalo. But after losing more than one friend back home during his freshman year, he found himself battling grief and on academic probation. But he was able to work through that difficult season. He was also much more social by his sophomore year and quit his job with the school to start promoting events and hosting parties, something he would become known for throughout his college career. After graduation, Della took a job with VH1 Soul in consumer marketing and later transitioned to VH1 Centric, now known as BET Her. Della's career has taken many turns, including getting laid off and later recruited into the liquor industry via LinkedIn. But throughout his professional journey, he's remained a cultural connector and has played a key role in multiple recognizable events, such as Henny Palooza. Today, mainly through Soil Media LLC, Della continues to leverage culture and storytelling to drive awareness for brands and build profitable partnerships. So without further ado, please enjoy. Della, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I must say you might hold the record for the earliest uh, interview on the show. I take that back. I think we had one guest that was on some like, we can do this at 730 in the morning. Um, so you might be <laughs> you might be second place. But shout out to you for getting up this early uh, for this conversation. Of course. Appreciate you. I'm, I'll be running on New York hours. So this ain't terrible. The way you even just said that, I can tell you have New York energy. That's <laughs> <laughs> you. Early bird gets the worm. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm very excited about this conversation. I know you've had an interesting journey and have come across a lot of interesting people. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Who is Della Yador? Della Yador is, uh, I guess, a connector, organizer, an optimist. Believes in what what could be, and so I'm gonna jump straight to the optimist and believing what could be because you and I both know right that when you look like us, there are many things that try to present to you what can't be right, and we spend a lot of time talking about the obstacles that we have to overcome uh, just by virtue of being Black in America, and to hold on to that optimism is no small feat. We know that even in the age of manifestation and all those things, the secret law of attraction, it can be really hard to stay on the path and expect great things. So where does that optimism come from for you? Where was that born? Well, I'll tell you where it's not from. It's not from everything being fine, right? Mm. I think sometimes people have this assumption that optimistic people, everything's going great, right? And I think it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, courage, right? Um, when you do something and you're afraid, it doesn't mean you don't do it, right? You do it regardless of fear. So you still got to be optimistic regardless of the circumstances because your mental really controls your situation. It really controls your, your perspective. So for me, optimism comes from just believing things could be better. That's where it starts on the inside. You got to change your perspective, your view. You got to believe that things could be a certain way. Otherwise we give up. What's the point of doing the work that we do 
Uh, what's the point of getting up every morning if we think it's going to be every other day? We get up because we have a chance to rewrite the future. Uh, and all that happens in the moment. So I think my optimism really just comes from just believing you can. And it comes from losses. <laughs> Losing's a great teacher. Uh, I've, I've had my fair share uh, and it's given me some perspective uh, on how to move. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's not from everything being fine. I say that a lot. But, <laughs> You know. Do you think your life has been a journey and a story of consistently leveling up, even despite the losses? No, no. I think um, for me, it's been a series of ladders. And sometimes you jump off one ladder to a lower rung, mm. but it gets you higher faster. Uh, sometimes you're stuck because there might be people in front of you or obstacles in front of you. Um, and uh, And you're not either tackling them right away, you know, the way um, to overcome an obstacle is through it, can't avoid it, right? So um, I don't, I think that my experience has helped me see wins even when they were losses. It hasn't always been this way, you know? I think there was, there was a lot of inspiration. I didn't get here on my own, but you have to be able to see a negative and have a perspective to change it to a positive, so... Um, the leveling up happens within you, even if it's not happening in front of you. You just got to believe that it can happen. Uh, That's a word. That's a word for sure. So now people who listen to the show regularly know we always take it all the way back to the beginning. Right. Sure. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Born and raised in New York. My my parents are from Ghana. I'm first generation. Um, went to Catholic elementary school. Uh, then I went to public high school in the Bronx, Lehman High School. Uh, my upbringing, diverse background, diverse people around me, you know, what could be, you know, I'm like big pun was my neighbor uh, growing up, you know, it's like you, you kind of see things happening around you and, and, and you want to be a part of that um, in one way or another. You got big, you got, I had hoop dreams at one point, definitely didn't go the hoop route, <laughs> reality set in, height set in, uh, or didn't. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you just see your surroundings, you want to be a part of it. And that we're all products of our environment. So for me, I think my upbringing, the Bronx, you know, had its hurdles. I went to Buffalo for undergrad uh, and out there I learned, you know what I mean? Got into a little bit of trouble, but leveled up while I was in it. Student government, um, started doing parties on campus with these amazing DJs called the Heavy Hitters. That really opened the door for me. And um, started building teams, started building communities, groups, um, and not necessarily community in the in this traditional sense, just camaraderie, fellowship, whether it was through intramurals or um, parties or events, just bringing people together, something I, I always liked to do and then ended up working at MTV for, for VH1 Soul Music Television, BET as well, uh, got laid off. You know, your first layoff, you're kind of like, oh my God, what do I do? Then you realize it happens to everyone. Uh, and then you take that, you bounce back, you learn, flip it into doing parties and events again, more with the community building and, and organizing. And it's taken me through a series of jobs and a series of other roles. But uh, meeting people along the way has given me perspective. Dealing with people, managing emotions, people and budgets has definitely given me some uh, some rigidness in, in this in this uh, entertainment game. So there's like so much back there, right? Which is great because now you set a roadmap for us and made my job a lot easier. But I'm taking it all the way back because you just slid in that you grew up living next door to, to Big Pun, which is crazy, right? If you're somebody of a certain age who was, you know, sort of a teenager and 
growing up in that big pun, like terror squad. And we remember how huge he was right yeah. before his untimely passing. So at what age and era were you living near him? This was a uh, high school. Uh, so it was elementary school into high school. So this is 1996 mm-hmm. um, into 97, 98. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I mean, it was it was a time, right? Like it was like, yeah, Beach Avenue with Peter Guns was over there. It was just it was a good time for the Bronx. It felt really dope, you know, and, you know, being in the Bronx, you're not really aware of the other boroughs and what what's going on locally around there. But I mean, it's New York. It was hip hop. It was the 90s. So it definitely hit different. So growing up in that environment, but also having the backdrop of being first generation, how did those two worlds really collide? Because when I think of parents who emigrate to this country from the diaspora, from the Caribbean, uh, it's a focus on discipline, academia, not really thinking about the hip hop era in New York. So were you enmeshed in that at all, particularly at, you know, such a young age? Yeah. My my oldest sister actually got me into music. She used to watch Video Music Box, uh, Channel 25, Rob McDaniels with the, the hanger out the TV. And I used to watch it even when I was, wasn't supposed to. And um, my oldest sister's the reason I kind of got into music uh, or just loving hip hop at, at a younger age. My, my parents, uh, I have five sisters, um, you know, my parents were pretty strict. My mom was a nurse. My dad worked at a correctional facility. Um, I think they were pretty good in balancing the uh, traditional uh, West African being strict and then also letting me assimilate to the environment that I was in, the positive of it, like a little bit more Americanized. Um, I ate banku, okra soup, pufu uh, growing up. Um but then I also, you know, my surroundings, they like I played outside, you know what I mean? I played with, with kids that didn't look just like me. So um, they allowed me to to get into things. And like, I felt like that was a roadmap, especially me going from Catholic school to public school. I got that balance of really, really strict and then loose uh, and loose and, and onwards up, up, up in that academic ladder. So I, I'm grateful for that, for that variety of perspective. I'm going to say perspective a lot because that's what shaped you know, my, my viewpoint, the things that I saw, the situations I was put in, either I put myself in or I ended up in, you know? Sure. So five sisters, and you're also nestled in the middle, right? Yeah, I'm fourth. So what was that dynamic like being the only boy in a family of girls and that many girls at that? Hmm. Patience was, was important. Uh, patience was pretty important. You know, um, I think that, you know, your, your big sister could easily take the role of your big brother, big sibling. You know what I mean? They, they, my, my two older sisters were like protectors too. And, you know, I was, I was around strong women for, for a long time. So, and then I had my friends on my block who became sort of my brothers as well. You know what I mean? So it was really, it, it was, a, my perspective was interesting. I, I had to, I had to uh, learn how to be a man for my dad as well, but also my sisters too. And they checked me, they checked me. They kept me in check. So. so growing up with that many women in the house, and I'm totally jumping ahead, but I'm just going here since it, it, it came up. Mm-hmm. How does that impact your perspective and interaction with women? Mm. Well, women are involved in most of most, if not all the organizing that I do, either from 
you know, check in perspective. What should we do? I remember I, I was doing this um, this kickback in Brooklyn, just in, in my in my spot in Brooklyn when I lived in Brooklyn, and um, I remember putting a mirror in the bathroom. It was like a community bathroom. I put a mirror in there, and then I had two women come to me and say, "Wow, it was so thoughtful that you put a mirror in there." I was kind of like, I don't I don't know how else this would have gone down. It was a little sort sort of super small thing, but it was something that I just like I know, like you have to consider women. You have to consider how these situations would make them feel across the board. And I've learned from them because women are the influences. Black women are influential. They do influence what we do and why we do it. Even if we don't realize it, the money we spend to do whatever we're doing for us, it's usually ending up ending up doing it for them. And, you know, you gotta, there's a level of empathy that I had to have uh, growing up around women, working with women, um, events with women included, women who DJ. So, so that was, you know, I just had to keep them, you got to keep them in mind. It's, it's important. Absolutely. So you get out of high school, you decide to go to bu- Buffalo. What were your career aspirations at the time? I was growing up listening to Hot 97. I was like, oh, I want to be on radio. Uh, I want to be a radio uh, personality. And um, I, I wanted to go to a communication school which is really important at broadcast communication. I actually didn't get into Buff State, but I got into the University of Buffalo. Uh, and I tell that joke a bunch. Uh, UB's a little bigger, but Buff State had a lot of flavor. UB had flavor too, of course. But um, I had aspirations to to want to be on the radio. Didn't happen that way. I ended up being a little bit more behind the scenes uh, from organizing events on campus, against student government, throwing parties. I feel like so many people in entertainment start throwing parties and people together right and that really opened the door because we got to look at what the party scene was like what the event scene was like and instead of saying we want to do it too me and my, my partners in my group we said what can we add to this that's missing so it wasn't an effort to like copycat or do it so we could also be there it was looking at all the events, whether it was the, the Greek orgs, the private event promoters, the club promoters, and say, what could we add to this moment that people would want to see? Uh, we call ourselves class entertainment. You know, it's all about upgrading um, the style, music, service. Our parties were, were cheaper than the other parties in Buffalo, but we spent more on talent. Uh, we spent more on like security and, and, and things just to make people feel safe in a cool environment. And those, those learnings about being service first and thinking about your customer kind of permeated through uh, all the uh, event organizing that I did over the next, honestly, 17, 18 years, even up till now, even if it's in a park and we're organizing a flag football game, you're sort of thinking about what would people want? What would people need to have here to feel safe? It's, It's always three phases to me. How do you get people to this event? How do you keep them there? Make sure they're having a good time. They want to be there. And how do you make sure they leave safely and they want to come back? So I have to always go through those thought processes, whether it's doing an event for myself with friends in corporate, um, you know, sort of what are those checks that were uh, checks and balances we're taking to make sure we have a successful event. Now, I know from having done the show for a few na- few years now and talking to people, having worked in New York for over a decade who really got their start promoting college uh, college parties, they'll tell you like, I knew everybody, everybody knew me, I was in the scene, but like academics <laughs> might've suffered. Was yeah. that your story? 
thousand percent. But but, but it was, my academics actually suffered before I got into doing the parts. My really? Freshman, yeah, my freshman year, I got to uh, to UB is two thousand one, so I was in Buffalo, and first semester I thought went pretty well. I remember going back home for Christmas break again, December two thousand one. Just had a lot of unfortunate situations, friends passing away from high school, from my block. I think, I don't know, I don't think I was as focused going back. Um, so second semester, had a pretty low GPA, didn't really do well. I ended up on probation. And then I started to to think back to high school. And part of the reason I, I did well in high school is because I was involved. Um, I was involved like the leadership committees or I was uh, playing basketball or, or helping organize events. And that balance help keep my academic mode straight. So I got involved with student government in college. And that was really, I mean, I, I just working with like 70 other kids that are your age and you're running budgets, events, like you're really running school activities. Um, that's something I'll never take for granted. I, I really do think high school was some of the best years of my life because I, I got to see things and perspectives and I got into the right amount of trouble. And then college was like putting a lot of that into action. I don't think I would have been able to be as active in college if high school didn't give me uh, the guidance. I had a principal, Mr. Robert Leader, a rest in peace, passed a couple of years ago, but he was, his last name was Leader. He was like the the model leader, right? Like he was the principal, he was stern when he needed to be, but he was he was very real and honest with us. And he was he was amongst the students. And I always think about that in the leadership position, right? Like you treat the janitor and the CEO the same way. Everybody gets treated the same way. It doesn't matter if you're a jock or really smart. Like you, you know, you just handle handle people um, with empathy in the right way. And again, I think from high school to college, that sort of permeated um, in how I handled work and, and, and dealt with people. But what is that conversation like with your parents? So before you sort of come back and figure out your rhythm about being on academic probation? Well, one, um, they didn't know. They <laughs> <laughs> need to know. Smart man, smart man. Yeah, keep that quiet, right? And that was, my parents had split in 94. So at this time, I went from living with my mom to living with my dad. So um, I just remember going back to school and needing to do what I needed to do or it was going to be a dub. And, and I locked in. And I think what they saw was, what my parents ended up seeing was me involved and way more active. Now, I had to go through great lengths to keep the probation humble, right? Because at, at a certain point, if you don't shape up, you ship out. It's a wrap. You just, um, there's nothing to hide because you won't be in Buffalo anymore. But uh, so I did what I needed to do and, and, and I shaped up. You know, you get the fear of God put in you, especially when you think about, I remember my academic advisor from high school said, well, I think you, you'd probably be better off going to a CUNY, staying in the city. I was like, why, why can't I go to out of the city, right? And I remember coming back with my acceptance letter and telling her, like, yo, look, I got into, into Buffalo. And she kind of smirked. I'm like, oh, man, you pushed me to do this, didn't you? You flipped it on me. So uh, the, the, the probation piece didn't really get to the West African side of my, of my family. They just got the other side of it. They got me making it out of that, getting out the hole. Listen, I'm not mad at that. Whatever works. <laughs> Word, word. So you're involved, you come back and you realize, okay, I got to shape up or I'm out of here. But then you still have this experience of having lost people your age during that time frame. So did that 
trigger a trauma response in you in any way or any thought around your own mortality, particularly as a young black man coming from the same community where you've lost people? Um, I think what it did is it, it, it made, I'm a, I like to think I'm an extrovert. I like to bring people together. I, I got really closed off. In that second semester, I was in a lot of fun. I lived in a quad. I had three other roommates. I just remember being really to myself and leaving early and, and coming back late and just not being the community person that, that, I, that I believe I am now. And um, I like it. You feel good. Life is a feeling process, right? Like, you, you know, when things feel off. And um, I remember going back that summer and just feeling like, yeah, if I want to be in this, I got, if I want to stay in this, I got to do certain things. If I don't do what I need to do, I'm just going to go home and stay home. Um, and I had to make a decision. I had to make a choice. Uh, and, and I realized that the obstacle, there's all these things that are going on around me at home, but it was my job to go there to Buffalo and do what I needed to do and lock in and, and, and not let my situations, my circumstances uh, determine my future. I, I, had, I had power to decide what that was going to be. Mm-hmm. So you get involved in student government, navigate the whole academic probation thing. When did the idea to start promoting parties come? My partner, Jay, we went to Buffalo together. It was my brother. He, um, his older cousin through parties, Fast Life Entertainment. His name is Ray. I love Ray. Uh, you know, I, I, we, used to, we used to watch them throw parties and be inspired by what, what they did. Like, wow, you were able to get all these people together and bring these DJs and do this in Niagara Falls and, and, and just really... They, they were the men, they were the guys on campus. And that was inspirational to us. And then we, everything was based on feeling. When we went to these events, we always wanted to be at a great party. And sometimes they, they didn't meet expectations, right? And disappointments are unmet expectations. So we're like, yo, we could do this. We believe that we could, we had the resources to bring people together and do these events just as well as the events that were already taking place. And I think one of the big, our big joker, my barber, his name is Suge, uh, and he was in the Bronx. He was connected to this DJ crew, the heavy hitters, and one of his best friends was L Boogs. And I always tell this story. We, we went to go meet L Boogs in uh, Soho. Myself and Jay went in suits. Went suited up. It was uh, two, summer 2003. And we said, listen, we want to work with you guys. We hear you on the radio. It's an RPM office. Uh, we, we'd love to work with you. Went on. I think at first he was just stuck because we were wearing suits. You know, we want, we were college promoters that pulled up in suits. We just wanted to know, we wanted them to know that we were serious. And, um, and then we just, I mean, the rest is history. Uh, we, we worked with them for about five, six years after Buffalo, I came back to New York, um, and then ran with them while, while I was, while I was in the city, while I was doing VH1, MTV, BET work. Uh, started doing their DJ retreats with my partners, Freddie and Carlos. And um, man, it just really opened the door. That opened the door into like the the social scene, the social industry, doing events like um, Henny Palooza at the time, uh, Trap Karaoke. And it was just like, it was all about the experience. It became about the experience. At our age, it was whether we were in a bar, a lounge, big venue, watching the grits and biscuits happen, watching the greatest day ever has happened. You know, they were, New York was like a scene for these type of events from the club to these experiences. So um, I'm grateful that that I had the opportunity to just bring people together in so many different types of rooms. So doing this right as a college student, 
I yeah. presume that it is profitable for sure. you, right? So you're doing that, but you have the academic piece as well. Do you feel like you influenced the musical landscape in Buffalo at the time also? Um, a little bit. I think from an undergrad perspective, so you got to remember the time, right? We're talking 2003, 2004. Facebook is just starting. Mm-hmm. So you had to have a college email to be on Facebook. Our, the music, Buffalo was... Um, Country's not the right word. It was, it was, it was, and respectfully, right? Because Buffalo owes me nothing. It was definitely like the the Southern vibe, right? Like you heard the little John, the little Scrappy, the ATL influence. Again, Buffalo is a PWI, but 75% of the students were from New York City. Mm. So, so it was a big city vibe and feel, and, and you got people from all over the place. So the musical landscape was very... Southern, but then very New York. Like it was Jay. Like I remember, um, I think I remember we did we did the first party or the last party of the semester, and I remember so seductive, Fifty Cent, Tony Ayo. It, I, I remember. I think I remember Flex dropped it in New York one week, and they went, "We can't wait till we play that at the party in two weeks." That was two weeks later. You know what I mean? And you know, I just remember songs defining moments in undergrad. Like I could think back to songs that define time periods in my life, like, yeah, like all go everything. Um, Trinidad James was like Henny Palooza 2. Um, all About the Money, um, uh, Young Thug and T.I. was like three years later, Henny Palooza. You could you think about songs that really were, were a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing was the same. Drake is when I was doing events in the West Village after we played Nike football, right? Worst behavior. So it, you just, music, the music, of the moment influenced us, but then we, when I think back to Buffalo, our New York roots uh, mixed with just the, the, the music that was popular at the time, which was Atlanta. Atlanta really ran the OOs. It was heavy for them. Uh, and then of course, Jay's, Jay, Jay-Z, of course. But I think the music, um, our influence where we were from inspired uh, a lot of the people that we were bringing to our events. So I'm, I'm grateful for that too. And does an event stand out in your mind as a watershed moment. And what I mean by that, the music was right. The energy was right. The logistics were, do you have one where you're like, this couldn't be any better? Yeah, that it slapped. I'm fortunate to have those moments at different periods of my life. Like I, I definitely had out of body experience in the town bar and watching people lean with it and rock with it while DJ mm. Low dropped the record, right? Franchise boys. I Like I had a moment where you know, um, somebody's on stage rapping Little Kim's verse on Crush with Crush on You um, at Trap Karaoke. I had a moment when I'm on my roof in Brooklyn, you know, three years ago, um, where people are playing Django over here and playing Spades over there, and it's the it's the New York City skyline, and I'm and, I'm, and my boys DJing, and my homegirls DJing, and everything's just clicking. I just get to stand back and say. Wow. Like this is, it still works. Like it still works. And it, these are different eras. This is over a 17, 18 year span. So um, I'm grateful for the people that have continued to party uh, with, with me and then the people that have got on along the way. And I like to think that the events that we did weren't just ratchet, get twisted. Like you actually, there were love connections mm. uh, 
at, at, at my events. There were business opportunities were made at my events, right? Now, I think the music is a little bit lower, so people can actually <laughs> hear themselves. You know, so That's can, when you also know you're getting a little bit older, like when the music, the volume comes down a bit. Bring it down a little bit, keep the fun right. Um, but yeah, friendships. Uh, I, I love that my high school friends are kicking it with my coworkers, my college friends are kicking it with my friends that I grew up with, like, I'm really appreciative of, of people continuing to rock with, with me and um, and it's not possible without them. I like I, I could throw all the events I want. People don't show up. It doesn't matter. Right. So I appreciate people trusting me uh, to create those spaces. So, so much of what you've referenced in terms of your involvements in throwing events are grounded in hip hop. And you worked at VH1 Soul. Mm-hmm. Right. Which when I think of VH1 Soul, hip hop is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. Right. So how did that opportunity come mm-hmm. about? Well, it was interesting because it was like Neo Soul. Mm-hmm. So when you connect Neo Soul to Jill Scott's, you know, connect right to the commons, connect connect right to the tribes, the leaders of the new school. So it's like the the hip hop is the, the rhythm of it exists even in soul, right? And we our budgets were minimal. Like we talking like, this is 2006, our partnership budgets were like 60,000, which mm-hmm. is possible, which is like, you know, I mean, we had to make it work. We had to figure it out, right? Like it was our job to give more visibility and awareness to the channel. And, um, you know, VH1 Soul, was, it was a heart project and that connected right to VH1 and, you know, worked a lot on on some of the tempos like like Hip Hop Honors, which was great to work on, which promoted me to, to BET Centric, Centric, which was uh, BET Jazz and VH1 Soul coming together, uh, which is now BET Her. And, uh, and yeah, you know, hip hop is even through the work that I was doing nine to five and then the, the work that I was doing with the DJs from five to nine, (laughs) it was, you know, music was always a big part of what I was doing. Although I've never officially worked at a label, right. But I've always been music adjacent and I've been grateful for that too. So you have this progression professionally, but you're also doing all these other things Mm -hmm. in the evening. How are you balancing them? How's that balancing? Man, uh, sleep was suffering for sure. Uh, but when, you, when you're young, you can run the, street, run the streets and um, sleep sleep on the weekend. You figure it out then, right? Like I was I was working in Times Square from 10 to 6. Um, from 6 on, I go down to the radio station, link with the DJs. We go to meetings, go to events, build, figure out what was next. And I was still during, at the MTV time, I was still going back to Buffalo on the weekends or at least the first three years to do parties, right? Mm. But I was definitely like the dude like on the side. I wasn't I was the old head going back to undergrad. But 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 it was important for for me to like me and my partner Jay to empower the team that was there. Like y'all leading it. We're not even here. Like y'all y'all got to take this. And that was one thing we couldn't. It wasn't on us to hold on to that moment forever. Like you had to just pass it on. You had to make sure the people you know, took the reins and felt the ownership and were able to take it and move forward. And it's so dope when I see some of the people on our team who are doing amazing things now. Um, that was like internship. We were we were a business. Like people were taking internships to promote parties and throw events in Buffalo that was going to, that were going against their school grades. Like they had to write essays. They had to, there was weekly check-ins. So we turned the party promoting throwing piece into, you know, Here's here's your internship on campus. How to get in? My homegirl Adri V, who's in Buffalo, she's a host on radio. Like 
like so many people are doing uh, like amazing things and from sororities and um, and I'm I, I think it's just humble that people believed in the vision and then took the vision and ran with it too. So you're moving at this time, really at the speed of light. When you think about all of these things, a day job in and of itself, particularly a day job in the industry is a lot. We know that. Um, And then you're doing these things in the evenings on the weekends. When did this layoff happen? The layoff happened in 2011, um, September, 2011. I remember there was, so, so I had seen about, three layoffs happened at Viacom uh, b- before it happened to me. Two, two. And, and the, the, the code was, it wasn't a code. You usually see the office doors closed and you see people walk around with these blue envelopes. So I remember it was, um, I think it was like a Tuesday morning in September and uh, T.I.'s family hustles. Um, this was a while ago, right? His show on VH1. We had a meeting at 11 a.m. for it. It was like 1057 we all got emails that the meeting was canceled. Oh, that's strange. It's canceled. Whatever. One sign. Sign number two, all the doors were closed. Okay, strange. I look over at my boy, Mike, one of my best friends who's over at Netflix doing amazing things. I look over. All right, everything seems normal. Then we see the blue envelopes. I'm like, oh, shit. I mean, all right. So then we're all on instant messenger. We're all like... Like good old office I am. Oh, man. In our cubicles. In our cubicles. Like talking to each other. And then... Um, I remember getting called into my VP's office and I'd, I'd been there from 2006 and this is 2011. And I came in, I saw her face and said, Oh, it's time. And she was really sad. And, um, I, I just <laughs> remember like consoling her when she was letting me go. It was like, it was such a surreal moment, but it was like, it didn't all set, it didn't set in. Right. It was like, okay, damn, I get this package, get the severance. What I didn't realize is that, which she told me it was a numbers game. And, you know, I thought that was just something that people say, right? Like I took it, um, but they ended up hiring me back three months later. Uh, so I ended up working with VH1 for three, two more years, but in their partnership marketing division. So it was like Essence Music Festival. It was events. Uh, it, was, it was a lot more tied into the direction of which I was going. So I was consulting. I didn't have to be in the office every day. How did I flip that time? I was working with the DJs. And then in 2012, Henny Palooza started to kick off. And then those other events. And then it was like the social industry. So you got the music industry, entertainment industry, but then the social industry was like things that people on the timeline were doing, right? And bringing people together and the hashtags. And, and then things just started building, right? So that switch from just being 10 to 6, to being a consultant and doing a bunch of little things, I had to hustle, you know, like is how to make it in America. I think it was on at that time. It yes. Inspirational. You know what I mean? Like it was like, all right, well, how do I get it? Where, where do I get it from? Who do I get it with? You know, what's the vision? You know, why are people going to buy into what I'm doing? Um, and it was always about putting, putting back into like movements that I believed in. So how to make it in America was definitely prematurely canceled, but I digress. That show was great. And then it was here and it wasn't. And I forget what they were making room for in the budget. I, I can't recall, but there was, you read up on it, right? And there was this whole story about things got cut because they needed a bigger budget for something else. That show was great. I just had to say that. It was a fantastic show. Fantastic. <laughs> so you you get laid off, you get this package. Before this opportunity presents itself to consult, though, wh- where were you mentally and emotionally? 
having lost a full-time job. Like, damn, like what happened? And I knew, so, so just so you know, I had a feeling that, that I was riding a shorter wave because when, when I joined BET, I was there for 2009, I got promoted. I was there for a brief period. And I knew that once I went back to VH1, I had a choice, stay here or go back to VH1. I liked the nostalgia, the music part of VH1, like the hip hop honors. I wanted to get back to that. I knew that a lot of the work that I had given away to take the promotion was gone. So I had, so I was, I was back at VH1 working on general, some general market campaigns, some music, some nostalgia. It wasn't necessarily my specialty, but when you're a marketer, you just, you know, you, you, you figure it out, right? You make it work. So I knew those three or four months after I got back to VH1, it was like shaky territory, but I was active. I was busy. So losing the job was, it was, it was a gut punch. And I had a lot of people older than me just reminding me like, yo, like you, you're going to bounce back. You know, it's all good. I, I got both sides. I got the, ins- the inspiration people telling me keep it together. My phone also stopped ringing. Mm. Uh, so I got both of those things. I was like, damn, like, I, I guess you, you, when you, when you connect yourself to a brand, I was like VH1 Della, that was me. And then you realize that, spend more time building up the Della than the, what you stand for, because the, it'll be connected. It'll show, right? Like don't rest your brand completely on a label or something that could fall apart. Like put your effort into making sure you are solid so that if the title you has, you have goes away, you still are able to stand on, on solid ground. So didn't realize it at the time I was down. I was like, damn, what am I going to do? You know, you realize there's so many bumps in the road that you just, you just, you figure it out. You figure it out. And and anybody who has worked in New York and particularly worked in these industries that people think are sexy and the place to be, you know that you know a lot of people, but a lot of those people are connected to you because they feel like you have an end that they, they might need. Right. Or you can give them access or what have you. So in, in light of your phone, not really ringing anymore on one side of the coin, did it force you to really reevaluate some friendships and relationships in your life? It it made me evaluate how much I give. Mm. I think, you know, humans are creatures of habit. I don't think, I don't think people stopped calling me because they thought I was a, wasn't a good person anymore. I think sometimes people need something from you and if they can't get it anymore, they try to find it somewhere else. Um, I didn't, I wasn't going to try to villainize people for not being there for me. People had their own stuff going on. Who knows what they got going on. Right. And, and that, that, that was a reminder. It's like, do what you can. People will be there for you when they can. And when they can't, it doesn't mean you, you stop pushing your own car. Um, you still got to do what you need to do to get out of the hole you're in. So, yeah, I think what it made me do was be more mindful of how I share my resources and, you know, I bounce back. So yeah. grateful for that. And I think too, one thing is important, particularly when you're a mover and a shaker in a big city is understanding where connections and relationships fall on the Richter scale. Right. And I remember coming to New York very early on. I was meeting all these people and we're exchanging numbers. Originally from Jersey, went to Penn and Philly but I've only practiced law in New York, right? So, um, and was kind of moving in the space. I'm moving on, meeting all these people. And at the beginning, it's like, 
you know, this is cool. They're bringing me into the fold. And then you start to realize who has an angle and who thinks you have resources and you might be able to connect them, Mm -hmm. you know, closer. And you also have those situations where it doesn't start like that, but just the nature of bandwidth. Yeah. People just, they cannot maintain a close relationship. And I think over time, I've recognized the value of different types of relationships, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody in my life is a user, but I do have connections with people where they may call in a favor. We may not talk every day. We're not those kinds of friends, but I also can call in a favor, right? Yeah, yeah. And so having a transactional relationship has a negative connotation, but the beauty of being well-connected also is you may not be my homie in the way that some other people are where I may call them in the midst of a difficult season, but you're my homie in the way where I can be like, I need a solid, like, and you'll meet me there, but you also know reciprocity is going to happen at some point. Cause if you need me, I'm going to be there as well. And there's value in those types of relationships also. Absolutely. I, I remember going to um, the glow in the dark tour, Kanye West, mm-hmm. um, after late registration, one of the greatest shows I'd, I'd ever been to was at Madison square garden and leaving the show. He had people outside giving out copies of his book, Thank You and You're Welcome. Really small book, easy to read. And there's this quote in there that goes, people believe that to use is necessary. To use is has a negative connotation, right? To use people has a negative connotation. Understand um, when you misuse and abuse people, that's wrong. Uh, to use is necessary. And if you can't be used, you're useless. Now, that's a really harsh angle at it, right? But uh, I believe in adding value where I can and where you can add value that can also benefit yourself. You got to keep that in mind, right? So I believe in transactional relationships as well. It's all about the boundaries you create for these relationships. If you're tired of people hitting you up, why are you hitting me up again? I was working in liquor. I was getting texts for, you know, asking people to, for bottles for events at like 1am on a Friday night. Right. And I think in in the moment it could be like, man, like after hours, this is nuts. But also one, if you allow it to happen, one, if you allow it to change your mood two, and then you could just say, don't hit me up right now, my guy, like it's a weekend, hit me up later. Right. So, and, and then it's also just understanding that some people just don't know what you do or how you move. Like, I didn't work in a liquor store. Like I was doing marketing strategy. So they don't realize that in order for me to get you some of this product, what is the return on investment? I ended up having to teach people how to help me um, win. And then I had to just figure it out. You Sometimes you teach people if you see that they have the vision and, and um, they have the potential to be bigger and to move on. And then sometimes you got to say, yo, you got to get this right, get this right before you come back and we make this work. Everybody ain't going to like it, but you got to remember, you got to protect your seat where you're at. So that's how you sort of manage those relationships that, that sort of just have the handout one way and, and you figure out how they can help you. You know what I mean? And I, I do believe in giving as much free game as I can without pouring from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yo, if you don't share information and it dies with you, then you fail them anyway, right? So kind of got to share what you know, especially on the, depending on the, the rung of the ladder you're on. Absolutely. And so that's actually a great segue because we know that like being involved in the liquor industry and events, you already mentioned it, right? It goes hand in hand. So how did those relationships and all that sweat, sweat equity you built over the years inform the work you were able to do in the, on the liquor side of things? Yeah. Um, relationships. 
Mm-hmm. Relationships are currency. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Um, building them, fostering them, knowing when to cut some of them. Relationships. That That's what has me in the spaces that I'm in now, in the consulting rooms that I'm in now. And it's doing right by them as much as you can because the world is really small. The world is so small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's everybody. You can't cap. I think that's what's helped me in all these various industries that I've jumped in and out of, but specifically to liquor and events, there were no shortage of events that, that needed alcohol. And um, I remember first coming into alcohol and saying, I want to sponsor this, sponsor this. No, no, my man, you got, we got to have a strategy. We got to be strategic. What are our tactics? What is this? What's the ROI? What is this leading towards? And it took me about two years coming from the events promoter background to learn the spirits language, because essentially a CPG, um, and understanding what brands wanted and how the relationships that I had um, added value to these brands and what they were looking to accomplish. So I had a network by way of the DJs that I worked with, by way of the people in media that I had known and worked with, right? And that came through the events and I was able to reach out to people in different markets. So brands wanted reach, maximum eyeballs, right? So I knew people Chicago, LA, Houston, Atlanta, so on and so forth. Then touch the right people to work with, you know, and the right occasions of showing up at. So out of these hundred events that I was asked to sponsor, there were maybe 50 events that had the right number of people. And of those 50 events, 25 of them had the right people that had the right audiences that we wanted to work with to get visibility for this brand. And then you sort of go through your check mark, your checkbook of what events fit for which brand and what's going to, you know, deliver the maximum return on investment, eyeballs, awareness, liquid to lips. And then you make sure that that promoter or partner can actually fulfill what, what needs to be done. And some of it was learning on the job. Some of it were like, you know, working with the ghetto ones in Atlanta, like they, you know, they, they run ATL, right? Gold room and all that. So it's, you had to know your personnel. You had to know what your, what your strategy is. And I think a lot of the reason why some relationships break down is because people aren't honest about what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not honest about what they're asking for. And you always want to sit down at a meeting and say, what does success look like? How do we want people to feel? What is our desired result? Because you'll realize in these strategic meetings, you'll say, we want to do this, that, and a third. And then when you execute it, it's nothing like we said we wanted it to be because we weren't tight or honest about what we wanted to accomplish uh, with this partnership or strategy. It went around a little bit. Hopefully you took what you needed. To. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's important to note, too, um, as a bit of an aside, how you got into the liquor side of things. You were recruited off LinkedIn. Is that correct? I was recruited off LinkedIn. I was recruited off LinkedIn um, uh, during the two years that I was consulting at Viacom. Um, the last year was 2013, and I was sent a job description to be a market manager in San Francisco. And I was like, yo, this sounds dope. I have no idea what any of this is, but uh, yeah, they hit me and we're going to figure it out. And I was 30. I didn't have any kids, no, no serious girlfriend, no family. I was like, yo, I can move from New York to San Fran. I could try it. This, and I just, again, thought about it in my mind. I never thought about leaving New York really before then. And then I remember getting on the call with the recruiter and said, so sorry, we sent you the wrong job description. Uh, it's actually to be multicultural marketing manager based in New York. I was like, I ain't got to leave New York. Let's talk. 
<laughs> and, um, and we, you know, I, I remember going through the interview process, went up against um, three really, really smart people that were already in alcohol. And I, I remember going into it feeling like, I don't, I don't have a shot, but there's this quote, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. So I try to focus less on what I didn't know and more on what I did know and had relationships. I had seen how parties come to life in various spaces. I was aware of the consumption habits. You know, I think what's different from general market and multicultural is that when it comes to alcohol and spirits, gen pop drinks categories. Uh, if I like Kettle One, I like Smirnoff, I like um, absolute, I like vodka, right? Multicultural black people, we drink brands, mm-hmm. we brands, right? So sure, we might, you know, lean towards the, you know, the Hennessy, the Martel, the Douce, the Cognac, right? But we are picking Casa, you know, we, we saying Casa's our friend. We are picking, you know, over the, the, the pandemic, it was Classe Azul, right? Like brands, yes, tequila, but brands. I, I really do believe that there was a point where younger people didn't realize they were drinking cognac. It was just Hennessy. Hennessy was the category and it was the brand, right? Um, and that's just, you know, uh, from, a, from a habitual standpoint. But I, I think that, um, that, yeah, like that pivot from the events to learning a new language in corporate and CPG, um, I had to learn a few different languages and, and I had to navigate through those spaces. So I, I presume that getting this opportunity, it was a full-time employee role. Yes. Right? yes. So let me ask you this, because oftentimes, you know, there's two sides to every coin. And when you get into a consulting space where you really have to hustle, you can have those moments where you're like, man, I miss the benefits. I miss the guaranteed check. You know, all those things you can really be chasing the next opportunity. But on the flip side of that, is the flexibility, as you mentioned, like to kind of work from wherever, do your thing, pursue a lot of different roads at once. When you got back into the full-time role, did you miss the lifestyle at all that you had as a consultant? I never stopped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I definitely, um, I was definitely still working on Henny Palooza while I was working at Pernod Ricard, but yeah. So, okay, wait, let's stop, right? Do they know that? Huh? Did, did, did they know that that was happening? I'm sorry, you're breaking up. Can say that again? I had told, shouts to, I mean, we're here, the statute of limitations, but I told my CMO, Pierre Barrard, who's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with, when we're talking about trying to add flavor or energy to our brands and get people excited, we ended up taking into Sons of Essex. Mm-hmm. They had time brunch party on Saturdays, ain't too proud to brunch. And it was like, started at 11 a.m. It went till about 6 p.m. But from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., it was like food, music, hip hop, old school 90s, cool, like real cute, nice drinks, cute vibes, cute. Four o'clock, that shit went up. Four o'clock, we were standing on couches, we were swag surfing, we were indoors. This is daytime, but it was dark. And we walked out feeling like vampires when the light hit. I bring that up because it was important to bring the marketing leaders into those spaces to understand what was going on and what we weren't involved with. And I ended up telling him that my friends did a party called Henny Palooza. I didn't bring me up in it, but I was like, yeah, we should talk about doing more events like this. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, running around, getting venues, like 
doing all that. But but I had to let them know that this is the game that was being played that we weren't involved with. And people ignore marketing that ignores them. So while every while all these brands are figuring out who they are and what they mean to people and what they mean in this landscape, we are not showing up. We're not present. We don't matter. We're irrelevant. And we ended up taking some of those tactics, um, you know, in terms of the events, a little bit more energy. And honestly, when I became brand manager on Martel and my boss, Brian, and I, we had a real, really dope plan, work with really dope agencies to really put together something that would get people excited. Because we know that as brands, you can't play the number one's game. We didn't have the money to play it. We didn't have all the relationships to play it. But we had to define what our brand DNA was, what we're going to stand for, and then who we're going to bring in. That's when you bring it back to relationships. You know, we're working with Ghetto Gastro, we're working with Hustle Simmons in Chicago. Kareem Latif, who was, you know, Atlanta, was the reason the brand popped the way it did. And Kareem was like the light that made things move in Atlanta, right? So it was a lot of collaboration. It was a lot of building. um, But we had to leverage relationships. We had to leverage cultural insights. And yeah, they didn't know what I was doing on the side. I was still doing events in bars and then I ended up doing kickbacks in the crib and I, I kept things as separate as I could. I'd, in, I'd bring the brands in that I was working on, but I didn't sell it to people. I just try it. Like, mm. you, know, you know what I was drinking, you know where I was from, but just try it. Let me know what you think, right? Everybody's gonna be like, Martel, nah, I'm good. You give it to them in an unforced space, in, in, a, in a comfortable realm and the brand stands for something as well and people get to decide on their own um, and they, there's, there's some affinity and some advocacy that comes from that as well. So do you feel like working in this space, because I think as a consumer, we start to see things bubble, right? You hear it referenced in a song, you see celebs drinking these things, you see, you know, all that stuff. So we, I think sometimes we look at it as a reactionary measure. Like, yeah. Jay-Z's talking about Duce, so that's the thing, right? Diddy has sent a full bar with Deleon Tequila to D-Nice. Now, that's a thing. As a marketer in this space, do you feel like you're the driver of that, right? So you're the architect that is making us think we're just reacting to, to what's now becoming popular organically. But now hearing you talk, I don't know if that's actually the case, right? Yeah. Do you think that you are influencing psychological thought about things and behaviors, or do you feel like you're actually seeing what's bubbling and then manifesting that in a, in a greater, in a greater space? So many movements start from so many different places. I could tell you from a, from the corporate side of things, CPG, you got above the line and below the line, mm-hmm. like above the line, you're going to see the billboards. You're going to see the, um, the ditty with the bottle, um, you're gonna you're gonna hear it in the in the music um, below the line. The bottle has to be on the shelf, right? Like the bottle has to be in the liquor store. It has to be in the nightclub. It has to be on the menu for you to be able to order it. So a lot of times, you know, you have to have the influence, the cultural influence, but then you also have to have the alignment from the corporate side that we're all gonna work together through the line to make this pop. Right. And you're going to, you know, get some snacks some bumps in the road. They, again, there's no absence of setbacks. But if you have the perfect storm of people that want to leverage cultural insights and then commercially you want to put them into action, you can make a brand pop. But the brand also I think today what's different is that 
brands 10 years ago were like, look at me, I'm the man with the bottles. And I'm the, like, I'm on the table, look at me. Now it's look at we, look at us. What are you doing for the community actually? What are you doing to create um, you know, a platform for other creatives to build upon, right? And that's where you, you see a lot of brands that are working with producers that are working with creators or creatives and, and, and bringing things to life. And it's beyond just spirits and alcohol. Uh, but brands now need to realize, or they, they, I think they've begun to realize that people buy with their hearts. You don't show up, you don't have something to say, you don't have a reason for them to believe. They may not pull out their wallet for you. Um, again, I, I remember talking about Classe Azul like over the pandemic and people seeing this beautiful bottle and like, oh, what's that? Like some people were just refilling the bottle with something else. <laughs> yes, that was happening. Well, the jig was up, right? So it's like people don't figure out a way to connect and be with a brand one way or another. And I think that, um, yeah, you it, it is it is collaborative, collaborative uh, between corporate and culture. Sometimes, you know, respectfully, not sometimes, most of the time, all the time, culture is way ahead, mm. right? And corporate has to rejigger things to keep up with culture, right? It, it's hard. It's hard when you're on the corporate side and you see something bubbling and moving very quickly and you want to capture lightning in a bottle. You want to leverage some of this timeline conversation, right? But it's also different now because influencers want to be paid, right? Yes. I know my worth. I know my value. You want me to talk about this brand. You got to pay me. Like you got, like I know my worth, which is super valid. So um, it definitely comes back to strategically. What does the brand want to accomplish? Um, who does the brand want to accomplish it with? Where does the brand want to show up? And is the brand going to come in and try to change culture and make culture be a way? I've never really seen that happen. You can change some behaviors, but you can't make people love something if they never cared about it before. Like mm-hmm. that's that the people uh, that the people make, you know? I think that's a, a great point. And the audience is more discerning. Like your target market is more discerning, I think, mm-hmm. than often they're given credit for. One thousand percent. They know, they know, like, like I, I think the tech though, um, when you look at your cell phone and AI, we teach our phones how to treat us. Yes. It's learning from that's different. That's a we, we can have a different type of conversation, right? When we talk about like um, you know, brands and tactics and strategy can influence behavior, but you know, at the end of the day, we got the power of our wallet, the power of our voice, the power of our attention. It's all about who we decide to give it to. And a lot of times we give it away freely and willingly. You know, you even think about like there's a lot of people on social media whose livelihoods depend on, you know, upsetting us daily. Right. Mm-hmm. My homie Jazz always used to say that, like it's rage media. Like it's like people like don't react. <laughs> don't react. People want you to react. You react and it's making their checks go up. Right. Yes. So, um, you know, we got we just got to be mindful of our attention. You know, here we go from alcohol to media. But we're here. Listen, we're, we're multidimensional. We're multidimensional people. <laughs> That's a fact. So you mentioned early on about these losses that you've taken uh, at various points in your journey, but describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, That's a good ass question. Have to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. A couple of different times, mostly in the, in the event space. You know, I I I said it earlier, uh, disappointment is an unmet expectation. 
Um, and we always have this vision about, about how we think things are going to be until they're not. Right. right? And I, I remember, um, I remember it was All-Star Weekend, All-Star Weekend LA, and we had this big event for Martel. And I remember that there was some paperwork that didn't go through or something that was supposed to happen. California is very strict with with his alcohol laws. And um, we were unable to have the event. And it was, it was pretty disappointing. And it was like right before. And perspective in that moment was really important, right? It was, you know, what went wrong? How do we get here? How do we fix this? You know, how do we make sure this never happens again? And I think you know, as opposed to, you know, having a solve and kumbaya and it up and everything being fine. What was important for me was as the brand manager on that, making sure that everyone was doing their job and everybody needed to do what they needed to do was a little bit lost. And it was a learning moment for me, even though I had, I had a ton of learning moments and experiences. I think in that moment, I realized that even when you have everything completely under control, things can be out of control. And what's your game face in that moment? How do you handle it moving forward? So less of a, I think the extraordinary part was on me to manage the emotions, the budgets and, and everything on the internal side um, to make sure you never run into a situation like that again, even though there was nothing I could have done about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still got to have that perspective. Like you got to have the memory of a goldfish. I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso. But but it was, what am I? <laughs> on my list, you're like the seventh person to mention Ted Lasso to me, and I have not started it, so I I, I really need to do that. <laughs> that is one. Of, it's one of the shows that I think we need right now. It's a perspective show, right? Like you know, you gotta have the memory of a goldfish. You gotta you know, you take your loss, you take your L. All right, cool, that happened. Onward, forward, um, and then be better after it. And I'm grateful that I got better after that. Again, even though. As a leader, you got to bear the brunt of it. What's this this quote that that goes on? Success usually has a thousand fathers. Failure is usually an orphan. Like nobody mm-hmm. wants to take it, right? But when you're in a leadership role, you got to eat that. You know, you got to you got to you got to figure out a, a way through that, especially for your team. So definitely, definitely made my skin tougher. Definitely made me a lot more extraordinary, if you ask me. Absolutely, and and you know, I think. When you are a high achieving person and like come hell or high water, I'm going to get it done. In the back of your mind with everything, you're like, it is going to come together. It always does. And then when you have that experience with it is just out of your control and the chips are going to fall where they, they they may. That is really hard for for a certain personality type, namely 26ers. It's so it's hard. <laughs> um, I, I, for years, I've been saying um, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Or everything's fine. Um, and sometimes I say everything's fine when nothing is fine, but it's also because I know it will be like, mm-hmm. we'll, like we'll figure it out. We'll work through it. Um, and I think it, it's, it's more of a, of, of a level set that yeah, the house is burning. Yeah. You're, 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 you're running out with all you can grab, but we will get to where we need to be. You know what I mean? Take your time, decompress, take it in, breathe. Don't forget to breathe. Every time it's hot as always. Don't forget to breathe. Yes. Uh, that's really important. It just, it brings some calm back to you. You get to reset for a second. All right, then how, how do we fix this? How do we get back to that? So I always tell myself everything's fine and then don't forget to breathe. For sure. And you are involved in still in a marketing consulting group. Is that correct? I am. I am. Okay. I'm grateful for that. Um, 
really fortunate to work with some some very smart people right now and some different brands and that, that are doing some really cool things. So I'm glad the mind still works and I can use my transitional skill set from whether it's events, TV, tech, cannabis, you know, whatever it is. Like I'm, I'm grateful I'm, I'm able to jump in there and be a marketer, right? Because marketing is literally connecting with people. Um, it's also meeting people where they are. So I'm grateful I'm able to still do that. And looking ahead, what does the next iteration of Della the Marketer look like? What are you really looking forward to in terms of your evolution professionally? I'm looking forward to the give back. The give back is pretty important. Like I have a, a lot of thoughts to share. Uh, and I, that's why I started Soil, School of Influence and Leadership. I think there's a lot of perspective that I'm still learning but right now, you can find a reason not to be connected to someone. You can find a reason to be divided from, you know, someone next to you. I think we need to find more reasons to come together where people want to come together, right? You know, so we're not, I'm not in the space of um, convincing people who are committed to misunderstanding me, right? But there's some people, um, you know, facts and beliefs are two different things, right? So how do we come together? How do we inject a little bit more empathy into our day-to-day lives? Um, and then how do we do that through very comfortable spaces, whether it's music, whether it's fun, kickball, flag football. Uh, again, I think it's really simple tactics and iterations, but it's the same playbook I've been running for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it's still working. So if it, ain't, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Just <laughs> That's a great place. To wrap this up, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I feel like there are many things we continue, can continue to talk about offline for sure as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you and your time. Uh, likewise. So where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on social, uh, Della, D-E-L-A underscore Y. Uh, that's my Twitter. That's my Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn, Della Yador, D-E-L-A-Y-A-D-O-R. And, you know, I'm, I'm still outside, even in the pandemic, I'm still outside. We're here. Listen, everything you said about the things that you've done, there was no doubt in my mind that you are, in fact, outside. <laughs> <laughs> well done. To our listeners, listen, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this conversation, like, share, subscribe, tell a friend or three about it. If you are interested in the work that Della does, particularly if you need services, you know, we, we buy black around here. We, we support our own. So if you're looking for some, some consulting help, and I know, I know you guys are because you call me asking me if I know anybody, uh, reach out to him, but reach out to him with top dollar because we also pay those in the December 26th family. So check him out online. <laughs> Listen, we know, we know about the homeboy connection that we sometimes see, but we are about keeping black dollars in the black community. And that also means by way of professional services. So reach out to him, maintain the connection, build those relationships that he was talking about. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.